Okay, be seated. Uh, good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the room. Uh, this summer, Mariah and I, my wife, will be celebrating our fourth year of marriage. Uh, yeah, praise the Lord. Uh, praise the Lord that she uh, puts up with me each and every single day. Uh, you guys could pray for her. She probably needs it because uh, she's married to me. But um, and Now, as I reflect back on our time together, I, I think of the 10 months that we were engaged. And the engagement season is one of the best times of just like a couple's life because they're excited, they're joyful, they're looking forward to the day where they get to be wed together, but it's also one of the most stressful times in a couple's life. There's so many things that go into wedding planning. There we go. Are we good? Okay, uh, there's so many things that just kind of go into wedding planning that uh, makes people kind of ponder and step back and go, oh my gosh, this is frustrating. Uh, what, what's next? How do we make these decisions? What are we doing? Uh, how do we plan the perfect wedding? And, and I think the thing that maybe sticks out the most to me that's probably the hardest is the waiting. It's just the period of time in between that you're sitting there waiting for that day to arrive. The excitement, right? You're going to get all dressed up. You're going to, uh, God bringing you together with all of your friends. There's this amazing reception. There's food. There's dancing. It's just a joyful time to come together and celebrate God uniting you two together. But there's this joyful waiting that happens. And in this waiting, it's not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting because there's things that you need to do in order uh, to be prepared for the wedding day. And it's not just simply doing all these things like checking the boxes and making sure you have the venue checked out or making sure you have the right food or the right outfit or whatever it is. But there's actually a change of your own mindset and a change of what you're thinking. You're mentally preparing yourself for your life to change for the rest of the time that you're with that person here on this earth, right? There's something going on in your heart that you're preparing yourself for marriage mentally. Whether you start framing your budget a little differently because you know you're about to be spending differently because you're married to someone, or whether it's changing how you're gonna live because you know there's gonna be someone else moving in with you and you're gonna live differently or whether it's uh, changing how much time you spend with other people because you're going to need to invest more time with your spouse-to-be or, or whether it's simply just the way you act towards that person because you're no longer dating but you're stepping into this marriage commitment with one another. There's all these things that kind of push you to transform and change your life while you're in that period of waiting in the engagement season. You're looking forward to what's coming next and you're looking forward to how that's actually going to change your entire life life for the rest of the time that you're here on earth. The engagement season is an active waiting. It's not a passive waiting where you're just kind of sitting on your butt waiting, but you're actually moving towards other things. There's plenty of other things in our lives maybe that bring about this active waiting. Uh, say someone decides to join the military. If they just sit around and don't do anything before they go to boot camp, they're getting their butt kicked. Like the person's probably preparing and going on jogs and running and doing a bunch of push-ups, preparing to get into the military. Or uh, maybe it's uh, you're you're moving in a couple of months and your whole life starts to change because you're actually planning your life around how much longer you're actually in the current place where you're at. Or say you win the lottery you probably start spending your money a little differently even before you receive the money. There's all these things that kind of change how we look forward and how we change today before we actually reach the event or before this season actually happens to us. 
So like those moments today, this morning in Titus chapter 2, we're going to see that while we live currently in the grace of God, we are waiting for the future glory of his return to come, to continue to come, because we have a renewed hope. We look forward to his glory coming, his second appearance to come. So if we miss Titus chapter 2, we're actually going to start maybe putting our hope in the things of this world, the things that are short uh, and temporal here for the five minutes of pleasure and hope that we may have here, rather than being driven by the hope of eternal life, the hope of Christ's return, the hope of the glory that Jesus is. So this morning, the big idea that we're going to see, the main thing that we're going to see is that while we live in his grace, we wait for his glory. And so we're going to see that in three major movements. First, we'll see that we're taught by grace. Second, we're going to see that we wait for his glory. And finally, we're going to see that we proclaim these things. So if you would, read with me Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, about how we are taught by grace. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. So far in the letter of Titus, we've seen uh, Paul remind Titus of the eternal hope, right, that we look forward to. Chapter chapter 1, right at the beginning, he starts talking about the eternal hope of eternal life that's been promised to us before time has begun. He goes on to continue to encourage him, hey, bring in some elders, some godly men to continue to help build up the church. And he says, rebuke false teaching. And at the beginning of chapter two, he says, hey, let's live a little differently than the rest of the world. And why is all of that true? Why do we do all of that? Here in verse 11, he tells us the why, why it's all true. And it's because of the grace of God that's appeared. So the first major point we see here in the text is that we are taught by grace. Now he starts verse 11 with the word uh, for, or because, and maybe some translation. He's saying because of all of this, because of what Christ has done, that's why we live differently. So he's pointing back and drawing back on all of that. He's saying because of the grace that's appeared, we live differently. Now I think in Christian circles and just in, in our lives, we hear this word grace and we toss it around and sometimes we don't even know what it means. Sometimes we use it, and we use it uh, in a poor sense, and we don't actually use it as what it means. And so I want to explain what grace means. Grace means God's unmerited favor. Unmerited meaning that we've done nothing to earn it. So grace is what God has given to us, favor that he's poured out upon us, even though we did nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it, nothing to have it. He himself just gave it to us so that we would receive it. Now, the grace that's appeared, what he's talking about, if you can give the Christian answer, right? If I say, hey, what's the grace that appeared? Jesus, right? Like, it's Jesus that we can see that it's past tense. It appeared. Christ has come. He came. He died. He lived. He rose again, defeating sin and death. Jesus himself, the Son of God, became flesh, dwelling on this earth, teaching, instructing, encouraging, walking with his people, right? This is the grace that has appeared. Jesus has come, and in doing so, he defeated sin and death. 
He defeated the, the, the sin that was holding us back from having eternal life with him. Because now, through faith, through trusting in Jesus, we could actually have eternal life with Christ. He paid the debt that we owe. We can have a free, everlasting gift of life with Christ for all of eternity because the grace that has appeared, because of what he has accomplished through faith, through repenting of our sin, we can turn to Christ and say, man, what amazing grace that we've received because we did nothing to earn it. That is unmerited favor that has been poured upon us when we did not deserve it at all, and yet he gave it to us. That's amazing grace. That's great news that we can read of and see that that grace brought about salvation for us, that we could be saved from our sin and saved, not just from our sin, not just saved from hell, but actually saved into a relationship with God. I think sometimes we get so focused about what we're saved from rather than what we're saved to. And we are saved to great intimacy with the God of the universe. That's great news. That's amazing news that God has given to us freely. Not some way that we try to earn it or to win him over or or to claim all the works that we've done. But it's all by his work. Now Paul goes on to talk about the salvation and he says it's a salvation for all people. Now, when he's saying all people, he doesn't say that Jesus came, he died, so now everybody is saved. But he's drawing back on the paragraph just above. That this salvation is not just for a certain type of people, a certain ethnic group, a certain age of people, but it's available for all people. That the gospel is the power to save any and everyone. That the salvation is available for all. It's not just for older people or for younger people. It is for every single type of person. That Jesus could save and redeem anyone he so chooses to, the older men, the younger men, the older women, the younger women, the Jews, the Greeks, the slaves, the masters, it doesn't matter what your background is, Jesus came to redeem all people, not just one certain type of person, but all types of people. I think we tend to step back and go, okay, God's grace is probably only for the people who are really good. God's grace is probably only for the people who have never gotten in big trouble in their lives. So the people who have been walking with him for uh, dozens of years, it's never actually for the people that are hurting or that are broken and that are extremely sinful and continue to rebel. But that's not true. God's grace is for the needy. It's for the sick. It's for the poor. It's for the hurting. It's for those who have been damaged. It's for those who have rebelled against him. It's for those who have discounted him, rejected him, denied him. God's grace is for all people, not just one certain type of person, but it is for all people. That grace is for all of us. The, the hymn, Amazing Grace, I think speaks so well to these. I don't know if he was thinking of these verses when he wrote this hymn, but uh, I love the way it begins. It says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Friends, we were blind to not see the grace of God, but it has been revealed to us. God's grace has appeared. Jesus has come. We were wretched people, and yet how sweet is the sound of God's grace coming for us. That while we were wretched, while we were lost, while we were in rebellion, Jesus still stepped down from heaven to give us eternal life. That we can now see the grace has appeared. He has come. He has come to redeem his people. This grace is free for all of us. Praise the Lord. This grace, it not only saves us, but it also instructs us. Maybe your version says it teaches us or it trains us. Grace trains us, teaches us, instructs us to do what? 
To deny godlessness is what it says. To deny the worldly lusts and to live in a sensible and righteous way. Now, to live in godlessness is to simply live like there is no God. It's to live like God doesn't actually exist and living in your own desires for yourself, following your own uh, vision for what your life should be, whatever you think is right, then is right. It's denying the fact that God actually exists. And now here's the truth. Our passions, our desires, the way that we uh, sometimes view this world, that sometimes leads us to do some really dumb things. Our passions lead us to do dumb things. Here's, here's what I mean. Uh, the world in our country specifically tells us that 18, 19, 20-year-old kids, when they go off to college, that they need to uh, just kind of go crazy and wild and get excessively drunk while they're in college in order to just kind of get it all out of their system. So that way, when you're an adult, you, you don't have to worry about that stuff. Now, being a person who is very much so driven by people's approval, uh, I struggled with that. I stepped into college and I said, yeah, I'm going to live that lifestyle. I'm going to eat it up. And so I got excessively drunk every single weekend, tried drugs, did the whole shebang. And guess what happened? I ended up doing really dumb things. I would wake up Sunday mornings having no idea what I did the night before. I would wake up Sunday mornings with pulled hamstrings because we would run on the track for whatever reason and my track season was ruined. I would wake up one time, my fist was swollen so bad because I decided to punch a tree for fun with some friends. Like, our passions, our desires, our worldly lusts, when we look to this world, it just leads us to do dumb things. I can't even close my fist all the way right anymore because of that. It it just leads us to do really dumb things. And yet, when we put our hope on Jesus, when we fix our eyes on Christ, man, we're, we're driven by the hope that's forward. We're not driven by the eternal pleasures of this world that maybe last five, ten minutes, a couple of hours, whatever it is, but we're driven by the eternal life of Christ's appearance, that he's going to return, and that we have a new life, a transformed life as renewed people because of what Christ has done. A commentator pointed this out as I was studying this text this week, but he says that uh, Paul doesn't just write the word avoid, like, hey, avoid avoid the worldly lusts, avoid the passions of this world but he says, deny them. Like, this is serious. This this is actually stepping away and denying it, rebuking it, turning it away, not just kind of walking around it and and letting it still stay there, but actually turning from it and saying, no, none of that anymore, but I'm turning towards Christ. I'm turning towards God because of what he has done. And we often don't think about the consequences uh, of our sin. We often don't think about the consequences of the worldly desires or the flesh that's in front of us whether it's sexual immorality, drunkenness, slander, gossip, pride, we give in to those things because we want the short, meaningful thing that we think, hey, this is going to provide us something joyful. This is going to give us some sort of reward or pleasure. And actually, it never actually gives us what it promises. It's like overeating. Sometimes I'll see a Chinese buffet and I'll go, oh yeah, I'm throwing down. This is going to make my day. It's going to make my week. China Buffet, 70th and O's, right around there? Oh, yeah, that's the spot. Guess what? About an hour, hour and a half later, when I'm done eating, not good. 
it actually ruins my day because then I fall asleep, I put on about three pounds, and now I'm bloated for the next three days. It doesn't actually give what it promised. I thought it would make my day, make my week, but it actually did the exact opposite. See, our passions, our pleasures, we, we don't think about the consequences with them. We just kind of go forward and go, hey, it's going to give me a short-term reward, and I want it now. And yet, we should look towards the hope of eternal glory in Christ himself. So Paul reminds us, he says, deny the godlessness, deny the worldly lust, deny the passions of this world, and live like there is a God because he has appeared Look towards Christ, honor him, love him, be sensible, righteous in this present age, right now, here, today. Why? Why should we live that way? Why should we live like a God is here? Because the grace of Christ has appeared. Because the grace of God has come. Jesus has come and produced something in us, in our salvation. He has changed us. He's redeemed us. We, we don't live that way to try and earn God's approval. We don't live that way to try and be perfect people or good people, but we do it in light of what Christ has done. We do it because we are a new creation, a renewed people, a people with a new hope, a new life, because we've been redeemed and transformed by the blood of Christ. Not simply to just live this way, to check some things off a box and go, okay, it tells me to live godly, so I'm going to live godly, but actually having our whole mindset transformed, our hearts changed, always looking to Christ, to be motivated by what Jesus has done, not just simply being motivated to do good things just to do good things. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking? Okay, good. Uh, Good morning. Uh, So, as we keep moving forward, we see that the grace, it teaches us that Jesus is better, He's fuller. He's richer. He's greater than anything we could ever imagine. And that's why we live in such a way like there is a God, because there is, because he's come to save, to redeem, to call a people for his own possession, to purify a people, to bring them to himself. That is why we respond in such a way. The hymn continues on, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." How precious is that grace that's been given to us when we realize it, when it totally just slaps us in the face with how amazing it is that regardless of what we've done in our past, how we've denied God, how we've moved away from him, rebelled, yet that grace is still poured out upon us over and over and over again. Even as we continue in our own life with Christ and as we walk with him and we fall into sin and we step and we fall, yet he picks us right back up. And he says, welcome home, time and time again. Praise God that that's the God that we serve. Now we focus on him in order uh, or because of what he's done, not to try and earn his approval, but because we want to see him for who he is and we await his return joyfully. So let's keep reading about the waiting for the glory. So read with me verse uh, 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second point that we see in the text this morning is that we wait for the glory. Verse 11, Paul is talking about how Jesus has appeared before. It's got that past tense language. Now here, uh, he starts talking about how Jesus is going to return. He's got the future tense language that we're looking towards, that Jesus 
did come. He did rise from the dead. He ascended into heaven, but one day he will return. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it says that, look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth, they will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Philippians chapter 2 talks about this same coming of Christ. Verse 10 and 11. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. The glory of the Father is the Son. We need to look to Jesus, and he is coming and returning for us. Because sometimes this world, we look at it, and we realize how messed up it is. That it's broken, there's pain, there's hurt, there's sickness, there's illness. Tragedies happen left and right. How great of news is it that Jesus is going to return and restore everything and make all things new? That's the waiting that we're looking to. And Paul's not talking about a passive waiting. He's talking about an active waiting. See, a passive waiting is sitting in a waiting room, waiting for the doctor to come get you or the dentist or the dental hygienist or whoever it is. It's just kind of sitting there. You can't do anything. And yet here he's talking about this active waiting that moves us forward, that transforms us, that we can prepare for now today during this present age. While the appearance of the glory isn't until later, today, here, now, we wait actively looking forward to Jesus' return. The other night I was watching uh, How I Met Your Mother. I don't know if any of you guys watch that show, but I started watching it again. And in season one, the main character, Ted, he has this girlfriend who's a baker, and they're dating, and then she takes this uh, apprenticeship or something where she has to move to Germany. And so they say, hey, we don't want to date long distance, so we should break up. So they break up, and he uh, goes back to his apartment to see his roommate, Marshall. And he, Ted is telling Marshall that they broke up. And Marshall looks at him and goes, when is she leaving? And Ted goes, oh, she's leaving tomorrow. And Marshall goes, why'd you break up today? You still have an entire day left together. Why wouldn't you enjoy the time that you have? With, with her before she moves. And he goes, Ted, think of it this way. If you knew you were going to lose your leg tomorrow, would you sit on the couch and pout and be sad the whole day? Or, or would you run around, go for a jog? Would you jump around and, and do awesome air kicks until your leg got chopped off? <laughs> and so today, as we think of the waiting for Christ to return, why wouldn't we just, why would we just sit back like he's never going to come back? Why, why would we not live like Jesus is returning? Think of it again in the engagement season. People who are engaged, they don't live like they're not in a committed relationship before the wedding. They don't go around just going, yeah, I'm going to wait until the day I actually get married to be committed to that person. No, they basically kind of live like they're married up until the point of the actual wedding day when they get to live that out in fulfillment. And so as we think of our relationship with Christ, we're completely committed to him because he's completely committed to us because of the salvation that he's given to us. And so we wait in that committed relationship with him and we live like he's going to return. We live like he has come, that he did redeem, that he did save. And we continue to look forward to the day that he's going to restore and make all things new. And we live in light of that truth. That's why we look forward to the hope that is coming. Our lives are marked by 
by the two greatest events in history. The first being Jesus' first appearance, and the second being the glory of him coming back again. Notice that Paul uses the language of, of appearing twice. Right? He, he talks about it when Jesus first came, and now he's talking, he uses the word appearing, right? Like Jesus' return. When the scriptures use repeated words, that's something for us to key in on. Paul is trying to get us to see something, that this is something amazing, that we need to live in light of the truth that he has come and that he's coming again, and we live that way now here today. He's drawing that out for us, that this hope is something that's not just a guess, that we well, kind of hope for, but it's a certain hope. It's a true hope. It's a reality that we look forward to and go, Jesus is alive, he is reigning, he's ruling, and he's coming back again for us. And so we have this amazing eternal life promised to us with Christ himself, where there'll be so much intimacy, so much beauty, so close to him, we'll be praising him forever. And guess what? When he returns and makes everything new, in new creation, when we rule with him, reign and rule with him by his side, he's never gonna leave us, he's never gonna forsake us, he's never gonna turn us away, but we'll have great, beautiful, amazing intimacy with the God of the universe who saved and redeemed us as his people. There's these different moments in my own life where I start thinking about new creation and I get so excited. I just get so joyful and, I, and something in my soul just kind of builds up thinking about Christ's return. Now there's moments that are the exact opposite where something is hard and it, it's just not fun to walk through, and you feel some brokenness, and you see it, and you long for the day of Jesus' return because you want him to make it all new, and you know that all the heartache, all the pain, all the, all the sickness and illness will not be a thing when he returns, and so we long for the hope of glory to come back. Man, I think about those times, and I go, I can't wait until Jesus comes back. I can't wait until heaven. I can't wait until new creation when I have so much intimacy with God himself. And the truth is that we get to have that today. The spirit of God dwells within us. God is with us, in us. He fills you when you come to faith in him. And so we could have that great intimacy with him now here today. We can respond to that grace that's been given to us and, and poured out upon us because he dwells with us now, here in this present moment. And yet sometimes I fix my eyes on the world. Now it's, it's, again, not just something we do, but it's an actual transformation in our hearts and in our minds that we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on the things of this world, we're driven by them. When we place our hope in the things that are here in this present age, we're, we're not actually looking forward to the hope of glory. Now, for me, sometimes, personally, I, I struggle with putting my hope in the things of this world. I sometimes am driven by a desire for more money. I'm driven by a desire for a bigger house or a desire of everyone's approval and people really liking me. And I put my hope in those things. But my hope should be driven by the future glory that Christ is returning, that he's coming back. Martin Luther said this quote once, and it blows me away. He says this, I live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming again tomorrow. Wow. What if we lived that way? Man, if our hope, if our motivation, if our lives are focused on being business successful, having lots of money, our whole life is going to be driven by that. If that's our hope, 
If that's what we're looking forward to constantly, our behavior is going to be pointed towards that. Everything we do and every decision we make is going to be about our business succeeding a little more, our wallets getting a little bit bigger. Or if our hope is in maybe the perfect physical body, every decision you make is going to be going, okay, I need to make sure I spend countless hours in the gym. I need to make sure that I'm constantly eating correctly and perfectly, right? Our whole hope and our whole behavior is is put on those things. So my question for us to wrestle with this morning is, what's your hope in? Is your hope in maybe having the bigger house, the great successful job, having a little bit more money in your bank account? Or is your hope set on the hope of glory to return, looking forward to Jesus Christ and just the beautiful intimacy that we have and will continue to have with him in new creation? See, our minds are renewed by coming to faith in Christ. And if If your hope is set on the things of this world, I want to challenge you to start asking Jesus to actually change that in your heart. That the Spirit, just beg the Spirit to give you a heart that's looking towards Him and not towards the five minutes of maybe pleasure that you may get here. The the 15 years of some more money in your bank account when really we're going to have absolute eternity with Jesus Christ. To look forward to that rather than sacrificing all the things that maybe you're trying to put off so that you could have the things of this world, but to look forward to the future glory of Jesus' return and to live in light of that truth, not in light of the truth that the world has some things that you could maybe have here today, but live in the truth that what Jesus has done and what he's going to continue to do. The hymn continues on, though many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Was grace that brought us safe this far, and grace will lead us home. Because it will lead us home, that amazing grace that we have. So we know that as we wait for glory, Jesus Christ is going to continue to work in his people. The, the Spirit is going to move in our hearts to continue to look forward to that future hope. So let's keep reading about how we should proclaim these things. Verse 14 and 15. He gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself, a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So the third point we see in the text is that we are to proclaim these things. Verse 14 reminds us of the greatest news that we could ever receive, that Jesus himself gave his life for us, that he came and died for us. The grace that's been poured out on us is not something that just fell onto our lap. It it wasn't easy to come by. It's not cheap grace, but it's expensive grace because it costs a life. It costs Jesus' life. Could you imagine having absolutely everything, perfection, riches, glory, everything, and giving it all up to go and give your life for people who reject you, who laugh at you, who mock you, who think nothing of you, and who rebel against you. I wouldn't do that, but God did. He gave his life for us. He was rich and he became poor. He was perfect and yet he wanted perfection for us. He was in perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit and yet he wanted us to be united with him. He was not dependent on anyone and yet he came as an infant to be cared for by his mother. Jesus gave his life to pay for our debt that we owed God that we could never repay and yet he paid that for us freely and we could have salvation as a free gift because of him. This grace is not cheap. 
It cost his life, and by the power of the Spirit, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death so that we could have everlasting life with him, so that we could be cleansed from our sin, redeemed as a people. By grace, we are saved. Not by doing a bunch of things to earn God's approval. Not by being good enough. Not by working hard. Not by being a good person. But all by what Jesus has done. That's the amazing grace that saves us, to be redeemed with him. If you've never put your faith in Christ, if you've never trusted in Jesus, or if you've always rebelled and turned away and said, I don't think I want him, I don't think I need that, if your background has always been, I'm turning away from him, I'm rebelling against him, I don't believe in him, I'll I'll completely just push him aside, would you come to trust in Jesus today? Because regardless of your background, He's come for you to redeem you, to make you someone to bring to himself. A possession for himself is what this text tells us. Regardless of your background, the amazing grace is there before you. Would you put your trust and faith in Jesus today? Would you come to give your life to him because he died to bring himself or to bring you to himself? He gave his life for you so that you would give your life for him. He gave us a new heart, transformed us, created us as a new people, a new creation with new desires. The grace that's given to us, it changes us. It transforms us. It makes us new. A people who are eager to do good works is what verse 14 tells us. As I spent time in this passage over the last week and a half or so, I'm going to confess some sin to you guys. Um, I, I found myself frustrated with verse 14, specifically the end of it. Because in my own heart and in my own life, I am not a person who is eager to do good works and to serve people left and right. Some of y'all have amazing servant hearts. And as I found it, just like my time in this passage, I was wrestling with it. I was frustrated because I'm like, God, why is it that I don't desire to like serve people constantly? Why is it that I'm not eager to do good works in that way? Because usually when people ask me for help, I kind of grumble and complain in my mind. I don't ever actually say it to them, uh, but I just run through that in my mind, or I'll like verbally go, hey, let me find somebody to help you, and I'll find somebody else to do it rather than me doing it myself. And as I started pondering on this, I, I was frustrated, and I was just like, Lord, why, why am I that way? And so I started pondering a different question. I said, well, what am I eager for? What am I excited and joyful about? And there's different moments where uh, I'll walk away from something or an experience or something that I got to be a part of. And when God gets the glory, I absolutely love those moments. I love being able to walk away from something and going, man, that lifted the name of Jesus really high. That gave God all the glory. And so that, that uh, just excitement, that eagerness to give God glory totally just changed my heart in that moment. And so rather than when people ask me to, hey, will you help me with something? Well, I, I'm going to change my mindset from going, okay, they're asking you to serve them to actually start thinking, Alex, they're asking you to glorify God with them. And so maybe that's helpful for you if you're like me and you struggle to do good works for people or serve them in that way. But uh, that's going to be something that I'm just changing to see, man, when I'm not eager to do good works, I have to remind myself that it's going to bring glory to the Lord. It's going to bring glory to God himself. And so I'm going to reframe my mind and maybe that'll help you as well. But we have to notice that this whole passage, we see that grace transforms us. It moves us. It, it, It totally changes who we are. It's a process that makes us more like Jesus. 
We use this big word, sanctification, to describe that, that we're made more holy, that we're made more like Christ. That's what that word means. And so we, we talk about being a people who are changed by grace, and so we're sanctified, we're made more like Jesus. Now, if we start thinking or believing that grace doesn't actually change us, that it doesn't transform us, that's a cheap grace. That's not true grace. God's grace didn't just save us and then leave us to just be stuck in sin, but he saved us, he redeemed us, he changed us to cleanse us, to purify us, to remove that from us, and to continue to pull us toward him, to live in a way that's moving towards him, not away from him. Not just to be stuck in sin, but to be pulled out of that sin. And if we're teaching that uh, grace doesn't actually change people, that's a lie. That's a false teaching. That's not true. Grace does change people. If we teach that we don't have to be obedient after we come to salvation, like you're saved and you're good, that's it. You don't have to obey the commands of Scripture. That, that's not true grace. Grace transforms us and moves us and turns us towards Jesus. That, that's cheap grace. Real, true grace actually changes our hearts, changes our minds, continues to move in our hearts. Think of it this way. I love my wife. She's absolutely amazing. If you don't know Mariah, you should get to know her because she's seriously one of the greatest people, the greatest person on this earth because she's just amazing. But um, I belong to my wife. She belongs to me. We're married. And why do I serve her? I, I don't serve my wife because I'm trying to win her over. I don't serve her because I'm trying to earn her love. I serve her because I love her because I have just this deep affection for her. It's the same in our relationship with, with Jesus himself, right? He's made us his possession. We belong to him. He belongs to us. We're united with him in our salvation. And, and we do good works for him. We're eager to do good works for him because of our love for him. Not because we're trying to win him over. Not because we're trying to uh, just make sure he sees us. But just out of love. Out of responding to the grace that's been given to us. Martin Luther, again, he said this. He said, if you love something, you don't need to be commanded to love it. If you don't love it, no command will change that. All of what we do for God, all of how we serve him, how we do good works for him, is out of the love that he's given to us and out of the love that we have for him. It's not about uh, trying to earn his love because he's given, to, given it to us freely. Jesus died for us as a free gift of salvation, that we could be changed and transformed into a new life with him. That's the amazing grace that we have. That's the amazing grace that we've received. Verse 15, Paul says, proclaim these things. Proclaim these things. And I think he's drawing on the whole first half of the letter. He's saying, hey, encourage, rebuke. Don't let anyone disregard you. Remember these things. He's saying, from the beginning of the letter, continue to share the eternal hope that's been promised to you for all of eternity. Continue to encourage others and rebuke false teaching, to walk in a new life, a different than the way the rest of the world is, but to walk in the newness of who you are, of people who are self-controlled, loving, hospitable, sensible, sound in the faith. We proclaim these things because of what Jesus has done, because we want to let our light shine before others so that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. It's Matthew 5. That's why we do good works, to give glory to our Father who is in heaven, to point people to him and give him all of the glory. Because one day, the grace of God, the glory of God will appear again. Might be today, might be tomorrow, 
Might be 2,000 years from now. I don't know when, but I know he's coming back. And because of that, because of the response of the love that he's given to me and the everlasting life that I'm going to have with him, I respond to living like he's here today. Just as Martin Luther said, the, the, the hymn continues and ends this way. It says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. For the rest of eternity, we get to praise God and be with him for all of the eternity. It just like never ends. It's kind of weird to think about, isn't it? And yet that's what we get to do. Praise him for the rest of eternity. Be with him in the beauty of the amazing grace that he's given to us. Completely committed to him. Now during this present age, it's kind of like we're in an engagement season together with him. We're waiting, and yet we're actively waiting towards his coming again, the salvation that he's given to us, the glory returning. We're currently between grace and glory here today. And grace teaches us and produces a joyful heart in us to look forward to the eternal hope of glory returning. And grace does not only saves us, but it shapes us to live our lives in the present life here today. We're taught by grace to wait for glory to proclaim these things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us just the amazing grace of salvation with you. Lord, I thank you that you have redeemed us and that you've made us new. I thank you that you have come and that you've appeared and that you gave salvation for us, that that grace saves us and it teaches us to continue to walk in the newness of life, to walk as new creatures, to walk towards you, to walk towards godliness, Lord. I pray that you would continue to work in my own heart and in my own mind, God, that I would have a renewed mind and heart, that I would look forward to the hope of glory to return, that you will appear again. Lord, I pray and I just ask that you would give me a heart to be eager to do good works for your glory, that I would let uh, the light that you've placed inside of me shine so that I could give glory to you, Lord, so that I could point people to you. Would I continue to proclaim these things and tell of your amazing grace that you've given? It's in your beautiful name. Amen.